Welcome everyone to Twig 216. We have myself, uh, Eric Kress, Mr. Seifert in the house, and also Laura. We have a special guest, Mr. Philip Black, who is the outspoken critic of all things Deconstructor of Fun. Um, and uh, he's in here to spice it up a bit. He's meant to replace Adam Telfort to some degree. With uh, or We're looking for a replacement for Adam. Of course, no one will ever replace Adam. But we are looking for more product management type folks to do that. Philip fits that mold, although Philip's not nearly as nice as Adam. He doesn't have that uh, Canadian... Uh, personality i suppose i'm just i'm just trying to avoid being ringo star you know anything i can do to avoid being you know, the extra the extra member I, I imagine that you're from what new york or east coast somewhere if I boston guess. grew up boston. in boston yes that actually fits the perfectly to uh your personality masshole anyway. yes masshole <laughs> got it all right so we are here to talk about a few things uh one uh philip is going to talk about his uh uh, post recently, you know, why is Snap struggling to scale? I'm going to talk about Ubisoft again. I really wanted to avoid, you know, bashing on Ubisoft, but I, I can't help myself given the idiotic statement that the CEO made recently. Um, Seifert's going to be talking about Voodoo. All right. We'll dunk on Voodoo a little bit. And, uh, and then Laura, what do you got tonight? I mean, I only have only a couple of few things. Um, I only have, I was going to talk a little bit about the last of us TV show. And then I've been pairing some other things that I won't go through today. Um, I think we have a pretty packed agenda. Um, All right. I have, well, just, let's just to, start. Just to clear, clear, I'm not going to dunk on voodoo. I'm going to discuss oh. a recent development. I'm not going to oh, dunk. Sorry. <laughs> okay. I'll dunk on voodoo then. I'd fine. Um, Oh, shameless plug, uh, speaking of shilling, uh, the Deconstructor of Fun has set a date for this uh, event um, in on March 9th. There'll be events on March 8th and March 10th. Uh, and in Mishka's words, the speaker list is nasty. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, we're getting a lot of speakers from the Deconstructor of Fun community as well as VCs. Um, and of course, of course, the rest of us will be there. So uh, it will be in Istanbul, uh, co-sponsored by Google, and it will be a huge event. So keep an eye out for it, March eighth and ninth um, this year. Can I show? I want to. Sh- I need to show something quickly too, as well. I have launched a new product uh, through my uh, consulting practice. It's a micro audit. So I have been doing these audits uh, for a number of years. They're very involved and time consuming. It takes about two weeks. Uh, usually takes about 10 hours of time on the on the part of the client in terms of just interviews. Um, I got a lot of feedback from smaller companies that they were too expensive. Um, so I decided to make kind of a mini version, right? So what this is, is you fill out a questionnaire. That's It's actually very in-depth and it takes a long time to fill out. It's taken uh, the last, uh, so I kind of spun this up with like a trial run. It took the three clients about an hour each to fill it out. Gives me a lot of information about how your marketing organization works. This is a performance marketing micro audit. And then what I do is I have a report card. I'll send you the report card, executive summary, and then we do like a one-hour overview Q&A session. So it's a micro audit for your marketing team. If you want more information, mobiledevmemo.com. There's a link at the top. Uh, There's a bunch of information there, and then you can register your interest. Now, of course, I spent the morning talking to Mr. Black about not shilling himself. And, of course, the first thing we do is shill the Deconstructor of Fun Istanbul event. And I don't know, some product that what you're making. Anyway, all right. 
Intro, Mr. Phil, what's, what is your story? Where are you from? What are you doing? And why are you here? Well, I'm, I'm now an independent consultant. Uh, I just came out of Amazon Game Studios. Absolutely incredible place to work. You know, if anyone's considering the, the jump to Amazon Game Studios, I'd highly recommend it. Incredible amount of autonomy, a lot of exciting things going on. I will sing their praises, even if you try to demur where they are from a product place, Eric. But I had an incredible <laughs> time at Amazon Game Studios working in HD. And before that, I was at Electronic Arts at DICE. And before that, I was at Scopely. And so now I've gone independent, GameEconomistConsulting.com. I'm trying to bring a little bit of the neoclassical framework that economists traditionally apply in academia to games. If you remember a while back, there was this really exciting experiment that King ran with Steve Levitt out of the University of Chicago, where they were looking at quantity discounting and whether or not changing the price per gold bar would increase revenue. They ran this massive experiment. And they ended up finding that the price was perfectly elastic. So they weren't able to increase or decrease revenue by changing the unit price of gold bars. That to me is an incredible result. Steve Levitt in that paper doesn't seem to care about the fact that they weren't also able to change the number of non-payers to being payers by changing price alone. So let's say you were able to take an IEP and you were able to discount it by a significant amount. They weren't able to move conversion by even 1%. It's an incredibly exciting result. And Steve Levitt doesn't care about it because he doesn't care about games. And he does have the skills, however, to run that experiment and to be able to ask at least the initial economic questions. And I'd like to see more of that. Economists should be getting involved in this space. And that's part of what I want to do here is get more economists involved in games and ask the hard questions and ask you know, how can we apply economic theory to games? Wait, we're talking about the same Steve Levitt that does the uh, that podcast um, and wrote the book. I kept yeah, economics. For, yeah, the, the yes, oh, the U Chicago okay. professor, I love that guy. David David Nelson teamed with him, who you had previously had on the cast, the head of the experimentation. Oh. Oh, you missed a lot of questions that you should have asked David. He's got a wealth of knowledge. Oh yeah, that's actually really. I'm really interested to hear how working with him is. He's yeah, he's brilliant. Um, interesting. Um, cool. Well, it's good to have you on. Um, we, uh, again, are looking forward to like listening to you talk about uh, game design um, monetization uh, and the Marvel Snap we're going to talk about a little bit later. Uh, we're just going to do a quick, few quick updates, or maybe not a few, a bunch. Uh, first of all, the uh, EU has come down on Microsoft over this Activ- Activision deal. Uh, this is not too shocking, except they kind of expected that the regulators would just basically um, kind of rubber stamp this and, and um, just allow them to have remedies. But they're going to come after them with statement of statement of charge is what it's called, which uh, which will basically lengthen at least at a minimum lengthen the time in which approvals will happen with the EU. So, again, another blow for Microsoft in this Activision deal. Uh, again, looking less and less likely this deal is going to get through and I'm going to, at least one of my predictions may come true. So we will see. Recent changes in the app stores are boon to mobile game developers. Now you can sell in-game items and currencies with big savings on transaction fees. And Exola just added three new features to their web shop for mobile game solution to help you level up your monetization practices outside the app stores. The three solutions are subscriptions, analytics, and promotions. Now, subscriptions are a smart add to your mobile revenue strategy. They boost game revenue with predictability while maintaining a lawyer user base. Analytics give you data. 
and data has become fuel on which modern society runs. If you don't know your players, you won't know what they want or how to get them to click that buy button. Analyze your data so you can create critical piece of the purchasing puzzle. Finally, promotions allow you to easily reach out to opt-in players via email or Discord and other channels to bring them to your web shop on your website. You'll be able to generate new sales and keep more profit. To find how to get started, visit exova.pro slash mobile or go to the link in this podcast description. Laura, little, you want to talk about... I have a little, um, I have a little add to that. Um, just that Reuters picked up that Microsoft is now eyeing uh, Netflix, that if it does, then this would be a possibility should it not go through, which was contrary to my hope slash prediction of Apple or Disney finding a partnership with Netflix. Um, it just went, we was talking about how that um, one Nadella um, has been on a, a shopping spree, spending spree, doing a lot of M&A. Uh, they already have, they're already working together. I believe uh, Eric, Seifert, you might, I think they're working on some sort of ad platform together. Yeah. I don't remember entirely. Yeah. Um, so they were talking about how this is, this could be a likely outcome should potentially if the um, Activision one doesn't fly. Yeah. See, the problem with this whole thing is like, if these things <laughs> get pushed back and, 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 you know, basically not allowed by the EU and, and then we have the FTC chairwoman going nuts as well, like nothing is going to get done. Right. They're basically, they're not going to prove any of this crap with these big tech companies, because certainly Microsoft shouldn't be a target. Microsoft has been relatively benevolent relative to Google, Apple, Facebook, et cetera. So I don't know if any of these deals can happen if they start like, you know, canceling every canceling this Microsoft deal. So I don't know. I, I, strategically, it makes sense. I'm not arguing that. Uh, certainly for Microsoft, it makes a lot of sense. But I, I think the regulatory um, environment is just too tough right now to get these deals done. But I could be wrong. I don't know. Any thoughts from you, Bill, or Eric? Well, I think that so, and I, I don't I don't agree with with the logic, but I think the case that's being made at least uh, is is like you call it like rational that hey. If Microsoft buys Activision, uh, you've got. Let's. I won't say it's rational. Actually, I, I, let, let's say that it's it's coherent. If Microsoft buys Activision, they've got too much concentration uh, of power in gaming. Okay, that's a coherent argument. I don't agree with it. I don't think the facts support that. But that's an argument. That's a coherent argument. If you block Microsoft buying Netflix, it's because well, Microsoft's a big tech company. And it'll be bigger if it buys Netflix, and that's a big tech company, and that's too big. And there, there's a there's a scale that's just too big. But if you read Lena, Lena Khan is famous for writing a paper when she was in law school about Amazon. That's it. That's all she's done. And if you read that paper, it sounds like a high school, uh, uh, or sorry, a, a, a college sophomore smoked weed and read Das Capital, and that was the output. Like it is, it is incoherent. And so I think they're pursuing this sort of incoherent. Uh, line of, of, of regulatory enforcement, which is no, nope, there's a there's a line after which you're too big, and if you're too big, that's bad. It's just Dude. de facto bad. And Netflix plus Microsoft would be too big, right? It, it's incoherent, right? So, Dude, she, but I don't know. She's the chairwoman of the Federal Trade Commission, right? I know. She, I she's know. not some in a dorm room smoking pot with her buddies. You know, she's like no, the, she got she's promoted. She got promoted from being a dorm room occupant smoking weed with her buddies to the chairman of the FTC. Irrelevant. Look, 
Whether or not she's, it has nothing to do with it. She still has the power to fucking just go go ballistic on these companies, you know. Like she she doesn't though. Like the courts, the courts can push yeah, back. Yeah, that's not the point. I, I, we made this point last week. I, I totally agree with you. The courts, none of this is legal. Like none of this like fits within the framework of what what the FTC is allowed to do. Right? They can't win any of these cases. Right? But they can make it fucking difficult for all these tech companies right. to make this shit happen. And give the ammunition yeah. to Europe to make it to block it, right? But, but if the cases, but if the case, but if the cases fail, if the SCT, if the FTC fails to prevail in a lot of these cases, I mean that strengthens the case law against the FTC. Like this would harm their power in the future. Like there are stakes here. If the FTC loses, it's not a clean slate with every administration. And so I, yeah. I actually think there, there's something at line here. And to me, you know, if you're against a lot of what the FTC has been doing. And you think these ca- these cases will fall, you know that just strengthens the case law against the FTC, and and that's personally what I would love to see because this to me is it's absurd. There there is no there is no argument against these acquisitions. I, I to your point, Eric, I, I don't see her arguments. I, I, where where are they? Well, what is the philosophy? I mean, but, what is the position? Okay. I know no, there but is we're also, I'm, we're also but we're also projecting. I mean, who knows if they would even like? First of all, Microsoft acquiring Netflix that's that that that's, it doesn't feel like a concrete. Eventually, and then we're projecting what what they would respond with. So we don't know. I mean, maybe they would say, "No, that's fine. Let it let it go through." But but uh, I would I would just you know if if people want to understand like what the pushback on this kind of um, uh, on this kind of like aggressive momentum has been, even within the FTC, go read Noah Phillips wrote a dissent to um, so the FTC kind of put out uh, basically like um, uh, it, it, they have a procedure that's like basically like a warning. We're thinking about. Uh, starting to, to to explore enforcement in this area, and it was around surveillance cap surveillance advertising, right? And and so they basically said, like, we're thinking about this. We're gonna we're gonna request like comments from the public, but we're thinking about starting to expand enforcement in this area. And one of the FTC commissioners, a guy named Noah Phillips, who, whom I've spoken with, um, he wrote a dissent that is just scathing. He's like, the FTC is massively expanding its remit. Without approval from any sort of legislative body, the FTC is trying to position itself as a legislator, which it's not. By by the by the sort of remit from Congress that formed the FTC, the FTC is overstepping, and he ended up leaving the FTC, which is actually worrisome, right? Because the person that replaced him, um, but or the, isn't so anyway. Go ahead. So I don't want to keep going down this route, but isn't Lena's whole purpose in life to basically? force the litigators to to actually make new laws around this stuff like that's her like 20 to 30 year goal that's what people keep telling me no it's a well, political it should... campaign <laughs> Is it? she, she's, okay. setting, well, she's but, setting herself up for a future political run in, in some it, office it, and it. she wants I, red meat the, she the wants to win yeah the way the new york guys you know the new york um uh district attorneys like go after big you know sac sure. or exactly. all these huge like targets so that make, they make an of general yeah right, right okay all right, moving on because this subject is getting old. But it does look like this deal with Activision is less and less likely to happen, in my view, anyway. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, all right, Seifert. So- this episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fund really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. 
It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing the full-on deconstruction first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. So I had um, a little bit of a discovery I published today. I don't think anybody else has written about this. I, I, I obviously, you know, attached some analysis to it. But um, discovery I made was, so every January, Apple releases the cumulative developer payout amount, right? So the total amount, since the inception of the App Store, the total amount that it has paid developers. And what I noticed was this year, if you back out, you know, if you look at the headline number this year and subtract out the headline number last year, that tells you how much money they paid to developers last year, right? So what I realized was, hey, wait a second. The amount that they paid to developers in 2022 is the same as the amount that they paid to developers in 2021. Now, what does that imply? That implies if developer payouts are flat, that implies that app store revenue is flat, right? Now, what could have caused that to happen? Well, I would propose that it was ATT. It was ATT that caused that to happen. Now, why might it have been ATT? Because what is the app store? The app store is the game store. Games represent the vast majority of revenues that are generated in the app store. And basically every other category of apps within the app store, except for gaming, doesn't really have to pay the app store fee anyway. Streaming's been exempted. Uh, and a lot of, you know, what, what pays, what, what creates revenue for the app store is one-off IAPs in games. Because Apple can extract that 30% from that, uh, from that, uh, from those transactions without any sort of ex exceptions, right? The only exception is a small business program, but we all know that's a very tiny proportion of revenues um, that that basically is covered by that, right? So I think that's a that's a pretty striking discovery that App Store developer payments were flat. Likely, uh, App Store revenues were flat year over year, right? Now the point I make in the article is that this is could potentially be interpreted as a bull case for gaming because what can Apple not afford to let happen? They can't afford to let the mobile gaming category completely evaporate or for the commercial opportunities there to completely wither away because they need it. And so my sense is if you look at a lot of the things that Apple's done recently, right, which is SK Ad Network 4.0, which is in, it, it, uh, dramatically expanding the number of price points that are available to app developers, um, those are all things that I think are designed to allow gaming companies to operate more efficiently, right? The price point stuff really wasn't covered a lot, but that's going to allow you to do much more like deeper personalization for different product offerings to, to specific users. And then SKNR 4.0 hopefully should uh, create better conditions for advertising performance. But my sense is Apple's got to recover some of that loss on the gaming side because it's not just the game developers that are hurt. It's Apple that's hurt. Uh. I'll take the under on that, dude. I don't think they give a fuck. <laughs> I don't think they give a fuck, dude. They, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think it's important to them, like, from a, a, a stock perspective, to some degree, to grow the services revenue. I mean, there's certain, there's no doubt about that. But I think it's more important to 
keep on top of regulators and, and cell phones. More <laughs> so it's like they got to they got to keep their marketing pitch alive, right? Of privacy. So maybe maybe they'll improve things. I don't know, dude. I think it's wishful thinking, but we'll see. Um, all right, moving on. I, it's interesting though. I, I yeah, it's interesting to track. We'll see it, what, how Wall Street reacts to it if you know they get a hold of it though. That 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 will be interesting. Anyway, uh, top ten games. So. So MPD released their top 10 games. This includes like full, this is just full package goods uh, games, just to be clear, uh, units and revenue type thing. So um, based on revenue. So top game was obviously Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, or as, as it is every year for the last decade. So no change. <laughs> Elden Ring, Madden, God of War, Ragnarok did extremely well. Uh, Lego Star Wars, of all things, which is a game has been released like a fucking hundred times and so like why it sells so well every time it's just remarkable but it is it was really well done generally speaking uh pokemon scarlet and violet again a little bit shocking given the poor performance on the switch and also the fact that this thing has come out for the last three years uh, almost the same type of game although this game was a little bit more innovative um fifa uh pokemon legends uh which is a more core version of pokemon if i'm not mistaken Horizon Forbidden West and MLB The Show, which came to play, uh, Xbox this year, as well as PlayStation. So that's the top 10 games. And then Mr. Black suggested, and I think I agree, that we look at uh, the top games on Steam, because that kind of sends tells somewhat of a different story to some degree, although not really. <laughs> I mean, so the top games, and they this is by gross revenue. I do not look at downloads or active user base because those are all vanity metrics um pubg battlegrounds was big although it's felt fallen off dramatically in the last year or so uh um, and craft is is really struggling generally speaking apex legend is up there again also has been struggling since call of duty launched in the last few quarters but that was the number well i don't know if this is ranked to be honest modern warfare uh Yu-Gi-Oh, master duel um destiny 2 still up there shockingly you know, maybe uh, Adam Telfort's making a difference over there. I doubt it, but no, I'm just kidding. Um, Naraka, I don't know that game. Elden Ring. Well, hold on. We should, we should pause on Naraka because that's the one everyone seems to miss because it's been doing incredibly well for over a year now. It's gone under the radar. I've seen almost no public conversation about it. It's from a Chinese developer. It's doing well in the West, both in terms of revenue and in terms of PSU. If you were to check out SteamDB, it's almost always in the top 10, top 15 played on Steam. And it's a third-person action battle royale. And it just blows my mind that it's generated such little conversation. It just doesn't yeah, seem like I, anyone who, who's into punditry in games has been talking about it, but it continues to deliver outsized results. So more credit to them. Nettie's, the graphics are amazing. I, so you're just saying it's a third-person battle royale? It's just it, Well, it's a third-person battle royale, but it does more hand-to-hand combat. Hmm. Think, uh, think Destiny Warriors meets a battle royale. That's cool. A, cr- a crude version. Uh, there's a lot of grappling hooks. Uh, it, it's interesting. It's it's worth taking a shot if you haven't heard of the game before. It's a new take on Battle Royale. And again, the success has been incredible. For over a year, they've sustained. And it's a paid product. It's not free to play. It's $20. Yeah. That's what's so shocking, right? Because generally, they would come out with a free-to-play version. But it looks like you, have to, you started, what, 20 24 bucks or something? Is this that? So the, it looks like the developer is Twenty Four Entertainment, published by NetEase. Is this, this looks like the only game they've made on, at least released on Steam. Is this is their one? Okay, this is their one game. Yeah. 
They, they made some small asterisks? potato stuff, but that's it. You've got asterisks next to the Pokemon games. Why do you have? Oh, what does that mean? The the digital uh, Nintendo doesn't Network, report digital uh, units, yeah. so it's it's oh, going to okay. be high, high, probably higher than that in terms of the rankings. All right, to, and to yeah, and to you know, finish it out. Counter Strike is always up there. Lost Ark did really really well, particularly early in the year. Um, wait, why is the Apex? This thing changed when I'm anyway. This is obviously not ranked order now that because it just changed. <laughs> Dying Light and Elden Ring, or I already said that one. Dying Light is the other one that did really well. Um, so anyway, that, those are the the t- kind of the top revenues on on Steam. Um, yeah, you know this year, I mean, we, we should basically see a very similar type list, generally speaking, for packaged goods, except um, you know Call of Duty, Madden, FIFA. You know, MLB will probably still be there. Um, and the only other incremental ones that, that I know of are Spider-Man and Resident Evil will probably be up there as well as Street Fighter. Um, and then Nintendo will be obviously Zelda. And I think they're coming out with a Mario game. So that should kind of... Actually, I'm already predicting top 10. That's it. It's easy. <laughs> just did that off the top no. of my head. Um, anyway, you moving was, on. Just quick comment. So Ragnarok is uh, God of War Ragnarok number four. Released mm-hmm. November 9th. Fourth highest or fourth best selling game of 2022 released November 9th. That's it, unreal. It, dude, that shit sold off the shelves, dude. It was crazy. Yeah. I mean, the game is good, though. I mean, like, oh, it's amazing. It deserves it. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and the fact is, they sold so much freaking hardware over the holiday, um, which is like the best thing ever for, for console business, is that I think it was like yeah. two or three million units of, of console, two and a half million units of, uh, of PlayStation over November, December. And so it's like, yeah, the, the attach rate was absolutely massive when you, when, when, when hardware sold at that level. So, all right, moving on to last of us. Well, your mic is muted. I want to make sure I don't have any clinking from the, <laughs> I'm drinking. Sorry about that. Um, so Last of Us TV series premiered on HBO on January 15th, three days ago. Um, it's, st- it's starring Pedro Pascal as Joel. Um, he was the lead in The Mandalorian and one of the leads in Narcos. And Bella Ramsey plays um, Ellie. And then I, I started to look at what other kind of TV adaptations of games just to get a sense of uh, where this one kind of stood. And it's not an official ranking, but... When I when I go back and think, so Witcher did uh, the Witcher was released for not on Netflix and it was quite quite highly highly rated, so eighty one percent fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, and then obviously League of Legends had Arcane, which was a hundred percent fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, there are a couple that didn't do as well, I think, or that rather let me rephrase it, they had mixed reviews. Sony had Unchart Uncharted, um, and then this was interesting because the critics actually kind of panned it, but the audience loved it. Um, and Halo was a little bit of the, was actually quite similar. Um, Halo was from Paramount and then also critics were a little bit harsh, but the audience liked it more, not as much as um, Uncharted. The Last of Us, you know, for, for me, I didn't play the game. I watched the game. So I watched someone else play mostly for the story. Um, and I thought the opening episode was, was great. It was absolutely great. And even if you haven't played the game, I, I think the story is so well done and well told that you actually don't need any sort of game, reference of the game to be able to enjoy the series. So season uh, episode one, huge, thumb, uh, huge thumbs up. I'm hoping that it continues through the, the rest of the series. 
have any have I assume hopefully all of you have seen it. Oh yeah. Yeah, I watched it right <laughs> up. Uh, Bill shaking his Pe- head no. So Pe- Pedro Pascal was in Game of Thrones. He got killed oh, by you're the right. mountain. He got his yes, eyes. Spo- spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Give, give me a break. Uh, give me a break. <laughs> that was years ago, dude. Come on. Look, um, at, I'm, I'm still scarred from Uwe Bowl. I, I just, I don't think anyone's given that man credit for kickstarting this whole thing. Uh, I don't know if I can touch, touch games, games as a movie anymore. I think I'm out. There's too many, too much, too much good entertainment out there that's not based on games. Oh no, man, this, 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 this is excellent. I, I have is, to admit, this this one was really well done. I mean, I, I think it was true to the game itself, and then also it was it was actually relatively entertaining for a yeah. show. But I mean, you're not wrong, Bill. I mean, it's been so bad like over the years. Uncharted was unwatchable almost. I don't know if anybody watched that, right? Um, <laughs> no. And Halo. Like it was like a reluctant, painful watch, you know, like it was so stilted and just, I mean, the, the, the graphics, the graphics, like that's what my son calls special effects is graphics, but <laughs> special effects were pretty amazing, but Jesus, it's so, it's so terrible. Um, so anyway, this may be one of the good ones. And frankly, I, I'm surprised the Witcher has such a low rating. Well, 81. I, I thought it was great. Yeah, I, I thought, thought Arcane, I mean, Arcane really is, is animated, but I thought that the story was fantastic. Yeah, all the nerds that riot love like Legends of Arcane, or all the nerds that love Riot love Legends of Arcane. I don't know. I I'll have to. I should shut the fuck up and watch it myself. But I'm just like, okay, it's anime, so sorry. <laughs> um. <laughs> anyway, all right, Philip, what do you got? So there was a recent post on EA's blog detailing some changes that they're making to Apex's Legends matchmaking update. And it's pretty rare to see a firm, especially a corporation as large as EA, go out and detail, I would say, to a pretty large degree, the changes that they're making. So they have a member of the data science team talk about where matchmaking has been in Apex and the changes they're going to be making going forward. So I'd say off the top, it's just great to see a company talk a little bit more about the changes they're making, detail why they're making it, and provide some empirical information on what's been going on in Apex Legends' matchmaking. And I would say it's just it's an underappreciated problem in gaming how hard it is to solve matchmaking. We tend to think, okay, it's free to play, there's a large N, that'll solve all of our problems. But when you think about you know PSU or player simultaneous users, how many players are on at any given one time, you know that's your matchmaking pool. And then you start to do division okay, you know, these many people are in North America, these many people are in South America, these many people are in Oceania. And very quickly, that end gets divided in so many different ways. And then you add on top, okay, I've got this skill thing I have to worry about. So very quickly, you run into matchmaking problems, and you start to make trade-offs between, hey, am I going to care about skill? Am I going to care about fairness? Am I care about wait times? And so the team in the blog posts struggles with a lot of these questions, they tend to talk about the fact that they're moving away from thinking about having the most powerful member of a squad dictate the type of experience you're going to have, which was a huge problem with smurfing. You know, people would, you know, change different accounts. They would, uh, you know, join, uh, you know, you might have a lower level player join a higher level squad. They'd have an awful experience since the higher level player dictates the type of experience you're going to have. And so they're making a lot of changes to this. They're going to be a little bit more equitable with how they think about squads. So, you know, if you join a friend who is highly ranked in Apex Legends, you're not going to have an awful experience. But I would say beyond just the changes that they're making, I would say if you get an opportunity to check out the post, that, you know, they provide a lot of empirical information about how they're just thinking about matchmaking at a very broad 
perspective. And I would say the one that really stuck out to me is that they're not building matchmaking for retention or engagement, which surprised me. Uh, they're, they're assuming that there's a correlation between fairness and retention and engagement. And I'm not necessarily convinced of that. I'm not necessarily convinced that every time you enter a match, having a 50% win probability is the optimal experience for all players. And oh, I think we've so started to see you're that. Poking, you're poking a business here. I got in trouble for saying the exact same thing a couple of weeks ago, but sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, I, no I, it, it bothers me that this tends to be something that we immediately assume in these conversations. It's almost like an unspoken prior. But when I look at just sports in general, when I look at European soccer, when I look at the NFL, when I look at the MLB, it's almost never the case that there's an expectation that you're going to balance towards a 50% win probability or some sort of equality. That's that's almost never the case. And we always accept those other sports as having competitive integrity. So it's rather strange to me in the game world, we immediately assume this, this kind of perfect equity or, or perfect chance between each player entering the match. So let's let's see how the changes unfold. Um, let's let's see how they how they end up doing. Um, it's rather strange that that they're not going to balance for retention engagement. Maybe that's just a claim they're making. Um, but I would say the other thing that I thought was rather interesting here is that there was little correlation between time played and skill. And this is something I'll talk about uh, when I talk about Marvel Snap. But we tend to assume that you know the more you play a game, the better you get at it. But I think what you end up finding when you work in analytics is that there's actually very little correlation between those two things. You hit diminishing returns in terms of your ability to master game fairly quickly. You know, as soon as you've put you know maybe five, ten hours into Call of Duty, your KD ratio isn't changing anymore. That's about as good yeah. as you're going to get. And so that's a problem developers are having to face because if I'm not not moving forward, you know, that's not really an incentive for me to continue to engage. Um, we're, sorry, this is kind of unrelated to the article. I just want to get your opinion. We're seeing like massive drops in terms of Apex, which is really bad for EA. Like generally speaking, that's been like kind of a cash cow, like four or $500 million every year, almost pure profit to some degree. Um, these type of changes seem more like elder type adjustments, you know, as the game gets older and you get less people playing than these type of. Uh, changes to matchmaking and, and whatever happened. Um, do you think there's any way they can actually recover the players that they've lost? I mean, or do you think, like, if you were to guess, would they be able to get back to where they were or are they probably just going to maintain an audience and, and, and kind of flatline revenue from here on out? Like the, the slow deterioration of an of a aging game type thing. What's your guess? So I think this is, I would almost kind of zoom out as kind of a triple, triple A problem. You know, how do I grow these really big franchises? You know, how do I grow Call of Duty? How do I grow Battlefield? How do I grow Apex Legends? And so right. there's been this kind of move to game as a platform. So we're going to take a given framework, you know, the three C's. And what we're going to do is we're going to layer in new experiences and new modes. And that'll be kind of our beachhead. So when you think about Call of Duty, you know, even if you were to go to their main menu, they optimize the experience around their zombie mode at one point, the traditional multiplayer and Warzone. And they've now changed that to DMZ in the most recent one. But the whole idea here is that we're going to grow the franchises by growing the modes, and hopefully that will attract a new group of players. And that's what Apex tried to do, if you remember. And they still have it in the game, but they have a CSGO-type mode in the game. And from what I can tell, it doesn't appear to have taken off at all. Okay. But I would at least say that that sounds like a, a you know viable strategy is you know it's hard to kind of bring new players to the core experience. It is what it is. I don't expect a lot of changes to that without alienating other players. But the idea of adding new modes to me seems like a potential opportunity. It just didn't look like they hit it out of the park with the CSGO one. All right. So that's what we should look out for in terms of trying to get back to growth is new modes, attracting new audiences, and and 
But what, what's your gut? Do you think it's likely that they can do this? Or do you think it's kind of course, of, of course, it's likely they can do this. I mean, when they came onto Steam, they had a huge increase in DAU. I mean, the, the game the game has kind of teetered sometimes. They've, they've had some depths and they've had some moments in which the DAU is accelerated. They'll be fine. The, the, the game is still strong. The core mechanics are still incredibly compelling. I would say the only threat I really see is from Call of Duty and DMZ and some survival shooters. I think that's a potential opportunity to go after the Apex core. But other than that, I think they'll be fine. Got it. Okay. Cool. Secret. Unmute. Uh, no, very interesting. I don't have anything to add. I so I, I read this bef- uh, shortly before the uh, well, us chatting today. I just want to emphasize this was a fascinating read. They really do really feel a lot on how they approached their. It's kind of like how the matchmaking journey of what they've learned and then how they've applied it and what they're doing next. So. For any, I don't know if we can post links as part of the the podcast, like either with the the um, notes or whatever. I would say any designers and product people, it, it is a very interesting read. Eric, all right, moving on. Uh, so my headline for today's episode is from yesterday. So the headline is. Mobile games, colon, the CNIL fined Voodoo 3 million euros. So the CNIL, and this is published by the CNIL. So the CNIL is France's um, privacy regulator. It's privacy watchdog, right? And so the story here is that Voodoo, which is the France-based hyper-casual gaming studio, uh, has been fined. Um, because they access the IDFV and use it for advertising targeting um, without asking for consent from the user, right? So a couple things to provide some background here. You might remember a few weeks ago, maybe it was two weeks ago, I was talking about how Meta was was fined. Uh, I believe it was 410 million euros by the Irish uh, uh, privacy regulator, the Irish DPC, um, in, uh, they, they had actually protested having to do this, but the sort of EU level privacy regulator had determined that they had to, right? So the, the Irish DPC initially said, okay, well, Facebook uh, collects this data from its own products, right? From via the, the interactions that people have with its own products. Uh, well, they, they receive consent uh, for doing so via the terms of service that, that users agreed to. It's a contractual basis for consent. Right. Remember, in the GDPR, there's six ways to collect and process data. One of those is consent. What the Irish DPC had said is, um, we, they, well, we, we agree that with Facebook's uh, propo- uh, with Facebook's proposition here, which is that they collect consent through people agreeing to the terms of service. The the bigger EU level privacy regulators said, no, you can't do that. You have to find them and you have to force them uh, to make changes. And, and this was relating not to collecting data from third parties, but from collecting and using data that they, uh, from interactions with its own property. So when you're on Facebook, liking a video or watching some video or whatever, things that you're doing on Facebook, Facebook was using that data to target ads to you, to build a profile of you. And so the, the French privacy regulator, so the Irish privacy regulator reluctantly agreed with the EU level privacy regulator and said, okay, that, that does not meet the, the uh, standard for consent. You have to actually collect consent. Uh, in an explicit way. Well, this now is the French 
privacy regulator saying that basically the same thing, that Voodoo was collecting the IDFV within its own apps. Now, um, a little bit of a primer on the IDFV. You might say, IDFV, don't you mean the IDFA? Uh, wasn't that uh, deprecated by Apple through ATT? Well, no. The IDFV is the identifier that Apple allows you to use when a user has opted out of ATT. So if you opt out of ATT, the access to the IDFA is revoked, but access to the IDFV remains. The IDFV is the ID for vendors, right? And what the IDFV is, is a persistent device identifier that is only basically uh, interpretable by a publisher, right? So the IDFV is standardized and unique for that publisher for the user whenever they play any of the publisher's games or interact with the publisher's apps. But it's, it's, it's inscrutable to anybody but the publisher, right? So it's effectively a first-party identifier. Now, what the French CNIL is saying is you access that identifier without collecting consent from the user, even though it's essentially a first-party identifier, even though we're not accusing you of packaging that up with other data and using it as a fingerprint, we believe you're only using it in a first-party setting. You didn't collect consent, and therefore we are fining you 3 million euros. Now, a couple of things. When I first saw the headline, I assumed, oh, they must have been doing fingerprinting. They must have been packaging the, the IDFV up with some other data points, sending that off to a third party, and then the third party was able to aggregate the similar data points across other Voodoo apps um, and then uh, use the IP address to actually build an identity for that user when they see them in non-Voodoo apps. But that's not what the CNIL is saying. They're not alleging that Voodoo is engaging in fingerprinting. They are just alleging that they accessed the identifier without collecting consent. And so let me just quote from the press release. Um, During its investigations, the CNIL, however, observed that when a user refuses the advertising tracking via ATT, the company Voodoo reads the technical identifier associated to this user, the IDFV, anyway, and still processes the information linked to the browsing habits for advertising purposes, therefore without consent and in contradiction with what it indicates in the information screen it it displays, right? So basically what the French uh, privacy regulator is saying is that user opts out of ATT. After they do that in a Voodoo app, there's another screen that pops up that says, okay, you've opted out of ATT, but we're still going to collect some data to use for advertising targeting for you. Um, And it's not an opt-in. It's just an information screen. What the, what the uh, French regulator is saying is, well, no, um, you didn't really uh, explicitly say that you were collecting this IDFV and users are not aware that this is happening and they didn't consent and therefore um, it violates French law. Now, you also might be asking yourself, wait a second, why is this being prosecuted by the French privacy regulator? Why isn't this being prosecu- prosecuted at the EU level like it was like what happened in the Meta case? Now, remember, GDPR you can have, it's a one, there's a one-stop shop provision that allows you to wherever your HQ is registered in the EU, that's your privacy regulator for GDPR purposes. Well, because this isn't a GDPR violation, this is a violation of specific French law, right? The French law is informed by what's known as the e-privacy directive. Okay, a directive okay, okay. is not a law. Eric, 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 all right. I got, I, yeah, the complexity here is, the, but what does this fucking mean? Does this mean that they can't use their own data to market games? I mean, does this mean that well, like, your your content yes. fortress is getting unraveled? Well, yeah. So the 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 foundation of the content fortress seems to be crumbling here. <laughs> and so, but there, but there, okay. there's there's uh, I mentioned the fact that this is French law, and not EU law, for a reason, right? So the French law is based on the EU privacy directive, right? That's uh. a directive. It's not a law. It's not a regulation. It's basically saying, okay, these are goals that you should be aiming to achieve with your data privacy laws. Now the French implemented that basically word for word, but the French court is the one going after this. 
And the mm. French court has been the most aggressive in doing this. They fined Apple two weeks ago uh, for basically doing the same thing. Right now, that so that's that's to say that if you thought GDPR was confusing, keep in mind GDPR is the EU level regulation that applies across the EU. There's the EU privacy directive that applies on a member state by member state basis, and the French specifically are really going after companies for but, violations okay. of French law. All right, let me just be clear here. So at, at a high level, though, I mean, every time we start talking about regulatory uh, things around tech. The EU and, and Europeans are the ones that are kind of like leading the charge, right? I mean, they, they, they seem to have more power to regulate, right? GDPR, um, you know, obviously this antitrust stuff, everything that's going on. So in this context, are we basically going to see, are they going to be the leaders in terms of, of coming down on all these privacy rules? You know, are they the well, ones that they're going to lead that and, and they, basically make it so that everyone has to comply with the rules that are set by the EU? They, they already have been with GDPR. Right. GDPR was 2018, right? So what right. I would say is that this is a new standard. This is a new precedent. That, that, that's, right? sorry, that, that's what I'm trying to say. This exactly. is the standard by which all companies are going to have to abide by yes. European or North America. So right. using your so, IDFB without opting in is not going to be allowed, basically. So what's going to happen. Exactly. So basically, if you thought content fortresses <laughs> were valid because um, you know, it was all first-party data – Unfortunately, it seems like this new regulatory standard defies that, right? And okay. I just want to read a quote here because I think it's really interesting. So this is from, uh, I think it was from Wall Street Journal, but they were talking about, uh, you know, this new sort of regulatory environment, new privacy environment. And so um, the quote here is from sort of like a well-known uh, privacy activist slash whatever commentator. Um, As regulators gain more experience with the GDPR, they are looking more frequently into how corporate practices align with the principles of the GDPR instead of whether they comply with certain requirements. This is vibes-based regulation. Oh, this is, Christ. I'm an activist. These are my vibes. <laughs> These vibes are bad. These vibes in the app are bad. I'm not feeling this. These are bad this. vibes. These are bad vibes. And guess what? I'm the activist. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the, uh, I'm the sort of expert because I put that in my Twitter profile. Therefore, I get to define what the sort of operating environment is for these companies. This is, this is kind of scary, I think, right? This is not based on their, you know, an interpretation of the law at this point. This isn't based on, I, I don't think your vibes conform to the general vibes of the GDPR and the general vibes of the EU, uh, the e-privacy directive. This is kind of scary stuff, I think. Yeah. The real question I have at this point, and I think I said this last week, but I'm, I'm going to reiterate it is, did Apple preempt all of this with ATT? Did they know that this was going to happen eventually in the EU or in regulatory bodies where they're going to come after privacy? So they preempted it all? Or, which I think is more likely, is that because they went nuclear on, on ATT, now all these other people are, are coming off and, and doing all these kind of regulatory things in the EU. Do you know what I'm saying? So like they actually set the ball in motion by doing this bullshit about uh, you know destroying um, you know the 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 you know their you know the Apple game recession Apple mobile game recession they created this thing and now everyone's kind of jumping on board right I, I don't know chicken the egg I suppose but well anyway I think maybe they got ahead of it just in terms of capitalizing on it right but yeah, remember right, the French right. this this French CNIL they find Apple two weeks ago now it's it's nothing they find them eight million euros yeah, Apple doesn't yeah. shit about that but nonetheless. I mean, I think Dude. what ATT did is less aggressive than what you're seeing happening in Dude. Europe. 
But, but hold on, Eric. Just, just wait, to help me understand, they call out advertising specifically here. But let's say let's say Supercell was based in France. Is this directive or this ruling saying that Supercell couldn't say, okay, Bob played, uh, you know, Clash of Clans, and I can also see that Bob played Clash Royale? That would be prevented if they decline the ATT prompt, or is no, this so only? For, so it's just coincidental that Voodoo is based in France. The Voodoo is being fined by the CNAL just for their activities. In France, not not based on the fact that they're headquartered. Okay. So so uh, the CNAL find again Apple two weeks ago. They find Microsoft. Uh, they find um, shit. I'm, I'm forgetting the name. They find a company, like like something like eight hundred thousand euros because their requirement for a password was only six characters instead of the more whatever the more effective eight characters. They find them because their requirement for a password was only <laughs> six characters and that wasn't considered secure enough. Right, I'll, so it doesn't matter that this is not because Voodoo is based in France. All I know is that my forecast for the decline in uh, revenue for <laughs> games this year looks like it's getting. All my forecasts are coming <laughs> true in the first week of the fucking month, yeah. second week of the month. You're gonna bump it down of the year. Yeah. <laughs> but to go All back right. to the super, but to go well, back I, to the Supercell example, can they not? Can can Supercell not look at Bob and see that he's played two games in their portfolio based on this ruling? No, so 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 the stand, I think what the, the precedent that is being set now is that you're not allowed to access that identifier for the purposes of ads targeting, right? So general and so so basically the and with the EU privacy the e privacy directive as well as GDPR, there's a very specific um, stipulation that says it's got to be like a net it's got to be necessary it's got to be necessary for the for the functionality of the product, right? Now that would uh, exclude ads targeting because you could say well you don't need to target ads that's not and that's what Facebook argued. Um, you don't need to target ads within your app. Your app could function without it. But the analytics stuff, it, you could claim is, is necessary or, or pre- pre- presumably. Right now, that's the question. Do they chase that down? Because I don't think they stop with ads. I think they keep going. I think they say, no, you don't need to build an analytics profile for these people. You're servicing an app to them. All you really care about is how they're playing the app. I think at some point they could say, no, you don't need to access the IDFE to know which session this is or to know that this person plays your other apps. You don't need to do that. Right, and I think that's probably where they go next. Want to know how your results stack up against other gaming apps? Well, now you can. AppsFlyer, the industry leader in measurement and mobile analytics, just released a new tool providing benchmarks on 21 key growth metrics for over 20 categories in 25 markets for both iOS and Android. And it's available now for free at appsflyer.com benchmarks. Yes, you heard that correctly, completely free. In just one click, you can easily compare installs, retention, revenue, media cost, and much, much more. With these benchmarks, you'll be able to get intel on your competitors, set goals based on insights from the top 10% of mobile games, explore new markets and growth opportunities, inform soft launches, and understand market dynamics and trends so that you can adapt your UA strategy accordingly. Over the past seven years, AppsFlyer's industry data reports, trends, and insights have helped thousands of mobile app marketers to excel at their jobs and grow their apps. Trust them. They know their data. Head to appsflyer.com slash benchmarks now for more info. Okay, uh, we got to move on because we're not going to get to the end of this. Um, I am going to spend a little bit of time dunking on Ubisoft, but this is just going to be more of a rant. <laughs> and not. We don't need to comment on this one. Um, fundamentally, Ubisoft came out and canceled three unannounced projects and also reduced guidance for the year and basically just torpedoed the year again. Now, the problem is they did this last quarter, right? So it's like, it's like 
this is like the worst possible thing you could do on Wall Street. The stocks that are all time low, they're like a three billion dollar valuation. It's like mice nuts right now. Like it's really like it is is a tough, tough place to be right now where they are. Um, And so the article basically suggests that they recent launches have not performed as well as expected. The industry, quote unquote, has shifted towards mega brands and long lasting titles. They're canceling three announced games on top of the four ones that they they canceled last quarter. Um, And they're blaming worsening economic conditions affecting consumer spending, which is fucking bullshit. Um, And that Just Dance and Mario Rabbits uh, underperformed in holiday, which is definitely true. Um, So I actually was going to let this one go. Like, I'm sick of kind of dunking on Ubisoft. I kind of do like Ubisoft, the CEO, the CFO, and the uh, IR guys I've met. They're really nice. Um, but the statements to the to the to the uh, to their workers just really kind of chapped my hide. I mean, it was it was unbelievable. And evidently, the union workers in Paris are equally as frustrated and pissed off as well because they are uh, are now uh, threatening a strike on in January. <laughs> so anyway. So this is what he said, which I just think is so tone deaf in so many ways. But today, more than ever, I need your full energy and commitment to ensure we get back on the path of success. I'm asking you, each of you to especially be careful and strategic with your spending and initiatives, ensure that we're being as efficient and lean as possible. The ball is in your court. The ball is in your court to deliver this lineup on time and the expected level of quality and show everyone what we are capable of achieving. Now, fucking, this is rich, dude. Given that the exact team which basically did the most egregious action of corporate governance I've ever seen in my career covering the industry went with this investment from Tencent, right? Um, and then all the mistakes they've made over the last like 20 years. And then now to come out without any type of humility whatsoever and kind of like put it on the ball is in your court. I mean, come on, dude. Like it's almost absurd, right? And so kind of my take on this, you know, at a high level, stop blaming the economy. Like, it has nothing to fucking do with the economy. They had record sales of console. Call of Duty had record sales. Like, everything is, like, firing on all cylinders except for Ubisoft at this point, right? You need to, you need to get the right products and the right timing and, and stop blaming, the, you know, the, the economy. Um, the notion that, that the ball is on the court of the employees, no. That, that, that is just not true. Like, him and his team have been making the wrong decisions for over a decade, you know, and now they're trying to blame the employees to like execute against their their mistakes. I mean, it's 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 a ridiculously like misdirection, right? They basically need to take real responsibility and say we have mismanaged this company by allowing our entire organization to get pulled in a gajillion directions, making the stupidest games possible for the industry. That is why they are in the position that they are. They're completely bloated. They're making games that make no sense, as I've said many times on this thing. It has nothing to do with execute. I mean, and also because of that, they can't execute, right? Because the focus is not there, the attention. And that is up, that is up from the executive, right? And, and, and just to be clear, the industry has been moving to mega brands and long-lasting titles for the last three generations of consoles, right? This is not a new strategy. I mean, even Square Enix, and EA, Activision, Square Enix, Capcom, all have done this. This is not a failure of the employees. This is a failure of leadership to put this them in this position, right? And so anyway, Paris Union, they're not going to take this laying down, evidently. Um, they're planning on going on strike on, on January 27th. And they have this insane statement of demands, which I'm not going to repeat, but you can read it. It's ridiculous, right? 
because in management's defense, Paris is part of the fucking problem, right? They, they are completely bloated. They have like assistance on the top of assistance, the top assistance. No one knows what people are doing in that place. And they are the biggest cost center in the whole organization. And many people I've talked to said if they shut down Paris altogether, they'd be fine, right? They'd be fine from a development perspective, right? So you should, I, mean, I think those people should be looking at themselves and seeing what kind of value they're providing to the company, generally speaking. But I do believe um, that most of the issue that is resolved around the exec team and, and they're decide, deciding to green light nonsense, right? And, and again, as I said earlier, like we've, the strategy is already out there. Everyone has been focusing on core IPs. They're not building bullshit the way these guys have been doing. So anyway, my, again, my whole thing on them is that they should be focused on the big IPs that they have. They have Ghost Recon, Division, Assassin's Creed, Splinter Cell, like those type of things, Far Cry, right? Um, and stop making steep rock band, whatever the fuck that game was, the crew, you know, like toys to life, fucking you know, just nonsense. Right. And, and and that's what they need to do in order to be successful in, in the company. And, and, and I guess at the end of the day, it's up to them to make that stuff happen. It's not like you can't just throw it on the employees, particularly in Paris. Right. Okay. Anyway. Um, and the honest truth is I'm actually kind of bullish on them from here on out. I knew they were going to have a struggle this holiday, but I think they have the right pipeline. They have three Assassin's Creed games this, uh, for the next three years. They have a division game that's coming out, uh, the Star Wars division game. They have Ghost Recon Splinter Cell in development. And I think these will help scale that business. But Didn't they have they an Avatar game? Cut the rest. Right? Get rid of everything else. Like Just, just cut right? Um, and focus. And I think, you know, they'll be able to get this co- company back in action. Um, so anyway, that's it. Bill, what do you got? I mean, what, what happened to the Avatar game? Didn't they have an Avatar game based on the movie? Oh, where, where is that gone? They ain't going to do shit. They ain't going to do shit. <laughs> I mean, they, they already missed the, the window. I, I right. feel like it's the, the franchise has no cultural relevancy beyond, you know, the one month of release. Just where, where is that? Why is that not shipping on time? Uh, I, well, and to your point, well, two things. One, they didn't get it out on time. Like, so they, you're right. They had a, min, a month window in which this movie was going to be huge. But why would they build that game to begin with? It doesn't even make sense to spend the money it was required to build an action game around Avatar, right? That's a dumb strategic decision. All that development effort should have been focused on IPs that could actually make money, right? That That's not like a one-time deal. Now, I know Avatar is a movie that's coming out every three years from now, if they ever can get them out, whatever. But it's not. It's not a good IP for games. It was a bad. Have you decision. Have you ever met an Avatar fan? Yeah. Have you ever met someone who's into Avatar? It's kind of like Transformers. You know, I, I it makes all this money, but I've never met a Transformers movie fan. No. Well, and that, uh, 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 well, there's all kinds of reasons why the Avatar license is terrible. But like, most of the reason is that there's no identical characters that matter, right? Similar to Transformers. Like, I think what you're suggesting is that. There's like three or four Transformers that are, I've said this a million times in the podcast, but there's three or four Transformers that are identifiable, you know, Optimus and, 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 and Bumblebee and whatever, you know what I'm saying. So it's a terrible license as well. But anyway, but these are the type of decisions that are made over and over and over again at Ubisoft chasing fucking rainbows, you know? I mean, like going after blockchain, right? And doing like NFT shit. No, stop it. Making movies. Stop, right? Toys to life. No, dumb, Right. Like there's a million of these things. And, and so anyway, I'm, I'm, again, I'm hoping that, uh, that this strategy, which should have been implemented 15 fucking years ago, will actually bring them to the light. You know, we'll see. All right, Philip, let's talk about snap Marvel snap. Another. Oh, Marvel snap. 
yeah. my love, I, my I'm love. Actually, we've been talking about this a little bit, and I'm, you know, obviously we have friends of the podcast that are part of the um, team, and uh, and I think you and I are actually seeing eye to eye on this, but you have a much more deep understanding of why the why. So let's hear it. So I would say just in terms of Marvel Snap in general, I've been obsessed with this game because I think there's more to Marvel Snap than just Marvel Snap the game. I, I think it's an Empire Strikes Back moment for HD developers coming onto mobile. For the longest time, we saw HD kind of be in the retreat when it comes to live service, trying to take learnings from mobile, trying to increase the amount of content, the speed at which updates were deployed, live ops tool. And we saw this internally at studios too. The idea that you would have a product manager inside of an HD studio is something that's been new in the last three to five years. And that's a direct learning from the mobile industry. And so we've we've seen kind of an empire strikes back, like the HD developers are now going on to mobile. And that's what Second Dinner's DNA is. They are Hearthstone developers. They've been at Blizzard, which is a very HD company. And what's exciting about this is that they don't give a shit about mobile design paradigms. They don't give a shit about 4X or Match 3. They don't care about any of these genres. They don't care about any of these paradigms. And HD, when you work in some of these studios and you start to think about prototyping and concepting, they don't really start from a place of, hey, what genre do we want to go after? They start in a much kind of more free-thinking way of what's an exciting game that we want to create? You know, what's an exciting mechanic? And so Snap is you know, in a place where they've seen the fruits of their labor. So they've had an exciting launch. You know, I don't know if it was a profitable launch. That's the thing that's always confusing when you see these games go out is you don't know if they've, you know, had these publisher guarantees in terms of the amount of marketing you need to spend. You don't even know if they're spending profitably. They're just kind of unloading this huge war chest. And that's exactly what we've seen with Marvel Snap. In terms of downloads, they're down from, I believe it was 800,000 a day in October to around 50K this month. 800K a day to 50K. That is an enormous decline in downloads. And we've seen DAU largely be steady through this period, but it's hard to believe that's going to be the case going forward. I expect DAU to see a little bit of softness. So the big question here is like, why is Marvel Snap having this kind of softness, right? We've seen an incredible amount of press hubbubble around Marvel Snap. I think Kutaku, you know, can't catch their breath to publish another Marvel Snap article. It seems like every single day they have something to say about Marvel Snap. And so my explanation for this isn't really a user acquisition based one. I think they're doing fine. That machine is just, it's turning. What I turn to is the same thing I was arguing in an earlier piece I had on Marvel Snap, which is really thinking about a contrast between Marvel Snap and Clash Royale. And so one of the differences I really want to hone in here is the difference between horizontal and vertical progression, because this is, again, another paradigm that is different between HD and mobile. So if you were to go to an HD developer and you were to explain to them that in mobile you're able to acquire more and more powerful items, and these powerful items increase your win probability, you know, that would that would violate so many design sacrileges. Uh, you know, it's very much about making sure there's an equitable and fair playing field. And so to solve progression problems, HD developers want to give you more characters. They want to give you different experiences, different things to master, not necessarily making you better or worse off in terms of power level. And Clash Royale is willing to make you better off in terms of power level. They're willing to give you more power. And that's incredibly important for the player experience. And we know this because we have an experiment from King's Experimentation Group, from Mr. David Nelson, who you had on the, pre- the podcast previously. And so one of the things they were able to do was to remove the abilities for payers to pay in Candy Crush. And you might say, oh my God, why would you remove the ability for payers to pay in Candy Crush? That's absolutely nuts. And so the question here is using principles of science to explore how things are connected. 
So if you think something is really important in games, if you think this feature or this you know, particular thing that you as a PM are, are going up to bat for is important, remove it. Remove it from the game. And when you remove it from the game, if the resulting decline in KPIs are as, as enormous as you might suspect, then we know that thing is important. So if you remove a transmission from a car, you know, there'd be huge consequences to the functioning of the car. If you were to remove a taillight from a car, the consequences would be a little bit less. So they were able to remove the ability for payers to pay. And what happened? Players churned. Why did they churn? Well, payers were using boosters to progress in match three levels. So you come up against a level that's rather difficult. I can use a booster and that will increase my win probability. It helps soften, you know, kind of the troughs and crests of difficulty when I'm able to use these boosters. So if I can't pay, I can't buy gold bars. And if I can't buy gold bars, I can't buy extra moves and I can't buy boosters. And therefore I cannot progress. And if I cannot progress, I churn. And I think we're seeing the same thing in Marvel Snap. So right now in Marvel Snap, you just have a ranked mode. So you'll go in, you'll assemble a deck, and then you'll try to increase your rank. I believe it's a number from from zero to 50, and it resets on a seasonal basis. And so like we were talking about earlier is that you reach your player skill equilibrium fairly quickly. And even with the introduction of players earning new cards, it's very difficult for a player to understand that adding this card to my deck helps me defeat the current meta I'm facing at my ranked level. That is an incredibly complicated problem as a player to solve. Hey, how do I, how do I beat, you know, the current meta and clash Royale, the example might be they introduce, you know, a hog rider. Okay. What's the counter to the hog rider. That's a cognitively complex problem for players to solve. And so for clash Royale, they'll just give you the ability to vertically progress your characters. So even if you aren't able to solve that problem, what you're able to do is open more and more loot boxes just by playing. And over time, your win probability is going to increase because when you open those loot boxes, your health, your attack speed, all of those things increase. So holding all else constant, just more time, that'll let me progress. That's not the case with Marvel Snap. I really need to figure out how to solve the puzzle of whatever's going on in the meta at which rank I'm at. And so this to me is, it's different. It's, it's tough for mobile. Um, to be able to incorporate these mechanics. Marvel, Second Dinner just can't pivot to, to Clash Royale's design. They don't have the nu- numeracy problem, right? So in Clash Royale, you might have, let's say, a unit with 100 health. So adding, you know, let's say just 10 more units of health is viable, right? So you can go from 100 health to 110 health. That's not the case with Marvel Snap's card design. You might have a card that's, you know, one attack and one defense. You can't quite make that two attack and then one defense. That would be a huge swing in win probability or a huge swing in card design. So they're kind of in this corner. Uh, they're in this corner where they've created an incredibly compelling horizontal progression. They've changed the mobile paradigm. They've brought a lot of HD thinking to mobile, but they're also realizing that that's a double-edged sword. So what's the solution? Where do you go from here if you're Marvel Snap? Well, I would argue the same thing I argued in my prior piece which is that first of all, you're not going to solve the horizontal or excuse me, the vertical progression problem. That's just, that's beyond the pale. It's not the right audience anymore. So what I would argue is you got to double down on horizontal progression. And so to me, what that means is to expand the type of modes you have and the type of players that can win in those modes. And to me, that means drafting. Uh, it's wild to me that we don't see more drafting. Drafting not only solves Marvel Snap's monetization problem by creating an infinite sink at which mo- uh, players can spend against, right? You can spend your $2 and you can go into a draft in which you're you know, having a unique collection of cards and you're trying to win matches. 
you can continue to do that day in and day out. And that's something I do in Magic the Gathering Arena. I think I've probably spent maybe $500 in drafting. So you have almost a limitless spend cap in your ability to do drafting. And not only that, but the type of players that win in drafting are different than the type of players that might win in a competitive ranked mode. So that would be my argument for Marvel Snap. Um, you know, let's explore some more modes. Let's double down on horizontality. Let's see what different modes can be created and make sure that different players can win at different modes. They did announce a new battle mode recently. That to me is just the traditional mode they've always had. It's very hard for me to imagine a different type of player winning in battle mode versus, you know, a ranked mode or excuse me, a draft mode. Um, so what is so? All right. From my perspective, they basically are settling on a relatively loyal DAU group of people that are playing, right? And they're maintaining their revenue, which is actually not terrible. Like downloads are like flittering, but not going down. But da the revenue is relatively constant. Do you think they can maintain this audience like over the long term? Um, or do they have to start creating new modes in order to get them more engaged in spending? And I'm talking you from a revenue perspective. I would go back to, to what I said in the prior Marvel Snap podcast, which is, what does Second Dinner want to be? Does Second Dinner want to be a one-game studio? Do they want this to be it? If they no. want this to be it, then they they then then they have to look at their P&L and say, am I happy with this amount of revenue? Am I happy with, with where this game has been? And that, to me, would be disappointing. I think they have more to offer. And I think when you scale games, you get a lot more opportunity to also grow the product. So I think secondary needs to make a choice. You know, if they want this game to grow, I think they need to think more critically about where to take this this product. I think just doing more of the same is not going to grow this product. It's just going to serve the existing the existing base, and that's not enough. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I'll we'll have a chat with uh, <laughs> Mr. Weibel and see what he thinks about this whole thing. Very interesting. Um, anybody else, Laura? Well. <laughs> I don't want to put my foot in my mouth. Last time I spoke about Marvel Snap, I upset a lot of people. But I tried. I, I mean, my I'm not the ideal audience, but I, I think I sunk maybe six hours into that game, and I still could. I did not have the progression that I wanted to have. Um, so for me personally, as as not as a more of a casual player, because I love the casual games, the matches were too long, and my progression was too slow. So that's, that's why I, I churned. But when I was in the match itself, I actually really enjoyed the gameplay. I loved the cards. I loved the random flip of the board to see what happens. So for me, if I, if I not from a casual point of view, if I wanted to expand the audience and lean it more, more to a casual audience, I would find ways to make it a little bit quicker and snappier. But yeah, yeah I, loved the, and, loved the and, gameplay, but it was fun. You know, with, with second dinner, they're you're, uh, they're not done, right? So this is like their first entree. I think it's a very, very successful game for a first game for a new studio, particularly coming out of HD. Um, yep. And you know, I think they're they're this game will actually probably provide them enough revenue to keep you know building. I mean, it's doing quite well, so it'll keep them going to build the next thing so we shall see I, i'm not convinced that they they had this next thing you know when i look at ben brode and just who that person is and what he's been saying about marvel snap like this is his magnum opus like this this is to nah. this is everything this is everything about he knows about ccgs he says uh and he he is the leader of that company uh, know, and if he doesn't want to move on from marvel snap he's not going to move on all right I, well so we, we will see here. just quick so phil you said it went from eight hundred thousand installs a day to 50 yes i mean there's no way they can maintain DAU, but that must have been like the, the viral spike at launch. I mean, that's not a number that I would anchor to. Yeah, no, that, that's fair. I would say negative trend line, though, overall is not well, course, something that what, will like, maintain if you, DAU. If you looked at like posts like second week of 
at post launch, what what was it? What did it settle at, and how, how much has it declined from that point? Because that, that to me is more meaningful and more reflective of like the health of the game. I mean, it's it's been it hasn't settled. There's been no equilibrium. It's been quite bouncy, but overall, there's been a decline. But it hasn't yeah. settled at any equilibrium yet. Okay, All but right. they're clear. They're clearly spending something, right? Ongoing because there, there's no way you get these kind of downloads, even at that level, organically for a game like this. But I don't know. I'm not actually 100 percent sure. But um, yeah, I mean, they did had insane downloads at, at launch. And so, like, the other thing that we talked about, and I just want to be clear on this point, is that the, this model is people are going to try to replicate this model, um, and, 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 and it's not going to work, right? Because the fundamental thing is that they had a huge loyal group of people that love Ben Brode and, and what they've done at Hearthstone, and, and they came on board. The Blizzard people came on board early, not to mention the Marvel people. So this is a unique thing. So the next game, that has some you know, card-based game that tries to do this model it's not going to nearly see the success or the level of downloads that we're, we, we saw from this. So that's my guess anyway. So fire beware. It's like Clash Royale type thing. It's like you can't replicate that success without being freaking super so. Um, all right. Anyway, guys, we got to go. Thanks, Phil, for coming. Um, you're obviously way too smart for me, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have you on. I do want to interview about the uh, – the, the, uh, we, we, we will do a special podcast, I, I promise, about uh, – loot boxes and uh uh and that whole argument i don't think we actually disagree i, I, I think it's much. generous to say that you have an argument i think you have an assertion <laughs> and a moral intuition uh, i like this guy there I we like go this guy. Yes. <laughs> me too we, we, we will have this debate i actually don't think we're so far off i just think that your our definitions our, our word choices is are, are somewhat controversial oh but, i disagree uh, i disagree <laughs> All right. Well, we'll do this. Um, anyway, I got to head out. Uh, have a good week, everybody. We'll talk to you guys soon. See ya. Bye. You did it. You made it to the end of the episode. As a fan of the show, it would help us out if you subscribe and leave us a review on the podcast service of your choice. More importantly, are you a member of the Deconstructor of Fun Slack group? If you have five years or more of games industry experience, go to deconstructoroffun.com slash slack and apply to join. Join the games industry's best professional community filled with peers always willing to lend a hand. Or subscribe to our newsletter to get all the latest insights from the Deconstructor of Fun content creators. Thanks for listening.